Hello, world singers. My name is Tyler. And my name is Brooke. And this is Cosmere Conversations. Our much-anticipated Words of Radiance reread part one. Of course, this could not be done in a single part. We're dividing it up once again. Seriously. First three parts of the book and the corresponding interludes, prologues, we will be talking about. As I was taking notes for this episode of the pod, I was just absolutely stunned by how much happens in this book and that was only parts one through three by the time you get to the end of part three the beginning feels like a dream three books have already happened exactly it's insane however before we just go down our nerd tunnel of words of radiance we are going to tell you about the book that we're both going to be reading after we do our oathbringer reread because we are super fortunate that this episode of the pod is sponsored by another one of our favorite authors, Hank Green. Hank Green of the Brothers Green, Vlog Brothers. Brotherhood 2.0. CEO of Complexly. Yeah, he's got all of the different labels. He's like Khaleesi. He's just got a lot of titles. (laughs) He's exactly like Khaleesi. 100%. But good. Uh, (laughs) No comment on Game of Thrones. However... His new book is coming out on July 7th. It is called A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, which is just gorgeous in and of itself. It is the sequel and the conclusion to his debut novel, which was a absolutely remarkable thing. And it is, honestly, it's probably one of my favorite books that I've read in the last two years. That's not not a Cosmere book, obviously. (laughs) No disrespect, (laughs) but the pod comes first. The Cosmere is our number one. Obviously. OG number one. However, highly recommend both an absolutely remarkable thing. And I am super excited to get the conclusion of that story in upcoming July 7th, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor. It is an incredibly unique and fascinating and gripping story about a young woman who achieves internet fame and there is a global crisis of contagious dreams so you know if you like kind of want to get your pandemic fix but without really being in a pandemic yeah just with contagious dreams yeah it's a good way to sort of fulfill that need and there are also mysterious robots so carl just a little bit of everything the hardcover ebook, audiobooks, all available wherever books are sold. I think that now in this time, if you have the ability to support local bookstores, that is probably great. Totally. And there are some great online resources that will allow you to purchase from local small bookstores from the comfort of your home online. So give that a look. Look up A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor on July 7th. Right after you fund the Way of Kings Leatherbound Kickstarter, just hop on over, order a beautifully foolish endeavor, and you're going to have a great day. That would actually be just 
an incredible series of days. Like times may be tough, but there is just a lot of great content coming out. There's some good stuff coming. Yeah, there's no reason to think that we just live in eternal darkness because we have we have the light weavers of the real world creating these gorgeous fictional but true ish stories for us to remember why life is worth living. Okay, you have just called Hank Green a light weaver. Yeah, I That's, did. We're gonna have to get him to talk about his results from the Knights Radiant Order quiz that was released. I would be curious to see if he came back as a light weaver. I'm actually I'm gonna go out on a, a limb and say that uh, Hank falls into like a will shaper category. I was just gonna say that. I was just. This is the say same that. debate we've had about Navani. However, yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> a beautifully foolish endeavor from Hank Green comes out July 7th, one week from the day that this podcast drops online. All right, since Hank is now an official friend of the pod, uh, we will send him and forward him a a nice little link (laughs) to the Night's Radiant quiz, and we'll get back to you on what uh, Hank Green falls under. Okay, and now back to our regularly scheduled Words of Radiance dive in. What a beginning to a sequel to my favorite books. Like, I just can't. There's everything about Words of Radiance is amazing. And it's what kind of like solidifies how good Way of Kings is because it continues that trend. You can have a one-off. You know, you can have a great like Mm, first book in a series, but then they can always fall off. That happens. Everyone knows those series when it happens. But Words of Radiance just seems to take all the things that I love. It takes it up a level. Yeah, for sure. And then just ramps it up. And we haven't even gotten to the conclusion. And yet I feel like we ended on such a high note at the end of that part three. But as I said, like there are three or four different climaxes. Is that the plural? Yeah. I don't know. It is now. We just (laughs) made it that. By the time you get to the end of part three. I could go back and reread just the beginning of this book again and 100%. still be picking out little tidbits that I had just missed from six days ago. Absolutely. So we have renamed the first section here of our podcast, the can't wait section or like the thing that you just have to talk about right now. What's yours? Okay. Now I didn't wait. I've been talking about this long before the podcast. It's true. I was talking about this before I got there in the book in anticipation. You've been talking about this since before we even started like Way of Kings. It's mainly the main thing. (laughs) Many years ago, I said, Brooke, let's do a podcast so that I can eventually talk about the (laughs) duel that makes the end of part three in Words of Radiance. It is the famous duel. Everyone knows. The duel. Yeah. All you have to say is just like the duel. Adolin Colin facing off against four shardbearers joined both by Renarin and probably a slightly better join for the team, uh, Kaladin. Rude. I'm just saying Kaladin showed his worth uh, quite clearly and the entire thing. But Renarin showed his bravery by coming into the dueling ring without even his shard plate on. That, my friends, is honorable and brave. Which is why... Well, actually, we still don't quite know what his corrupted sprint is doing, but I still believe that the sprint is operating on principles of like, you have to kind of be a good person. 
I yeah, I agree. I I hope so. Like I I don't want Renarin to turn into a villain or anything like that because he's just as you said he's honorable and like a good hearted yeah. person. The duel, the duel is the greatest thing in this book. It's the maybe the greatest point in the series. And it, it is like, one of the most dramatic, well defined scenes of this series so far. Like it is just so easy to remember, pick out point two. Everyone is gonna know exactly what you're talking about. And like it is a visceral thing. Like how the Game of Thrones people, you could just like whisper like red wedding. And if you don't know what that means, you don't I'm not gonna spoil yeah. anything. But like you could just say it's exactly like red that. wedding and people would be like, <gasps> they would have a, a reaction. That's how this duel feels to me in the yeah. Cosmere universe. It's just like, you know the duel, right? And everyone knows the duel. It is <laughs> incredible. We are. It is also in my top five favorite moments, but I've added more color. You had to talk about it just once more. Exactly. Because I can't wait. I want to <laughs> just squeeze it in as much as possible. I love... Everything about it, Adolin's realization that he made a mistake in the yeah. signing of the deal or agreeing to, you can to just the like deal. Feel his stomach just yes. sink. Oh, and it reminds me of the moment that Sadius uh, betrayed totally Adolin uh-huh. and Dalinar, and except in that moment they were together, right? And it was Adolin who was like. I told you, I told you this was going to happen. And Dalinar, who's just like, I know. And they're experiencing this um, this kind of like tragedy together, which makes it better. Now Adolin is alone. And the aloneness- Not only is he alone, but then he also, his foolishness endangers his brother. Yes. And like causes Kaladin to have to come to his rescue. And like the honor of his father- their entire like plan, literally everything is on the line. No big deal. And his it's life. Fine. Like it's clear it's made clear very oh, early yes. on that they are not going to allow him to surrender, that they are not going that they when Renarin comes down, that they are legitimately toying and using Renarin as like a weight against Adolin that is used specifically so that they can maim him or kill at him. At minimum. At, yeah. Yeah. Like he says he at sure. one point I'm not walking out of this arena. Yeah. Unless I'm a crippled. Like that's yeah. the only he way I'm getting out of here. He fully plans to be disabled at the end of that fight. But it's all wonderful. You have Zahel in the crowd, his like voice oh, cutting yeah. through the cheers and so just saying good. like you're not cornered, like show them who you are, Adolin. And of course, as you already mentioned, Renarin comes out unarmored. Somehow I forgot that. I thought that he was armored too. and like getting beaten up in I, his yeah, armor. I completely thought that he at least had his armor on and just, you know, isn't a very good fighter. So he's just getting beat up. But no. Yeah. He does not even have no his armor, armor on. At all. He's summoned the shard blade that and is And he just like didn't have enough that... time to go get his plate. Very quickly. And I know I'm taking all of the can't wait time. It's true. But because I'm just thinking about it. Kaladin catches the shard blade and that sends And here's screams. the scream. Yes. Yeah. We would assume that that is exactly what Renarin is feeling every time he summons his shard blade, right? Well, I Maybe think to it's a lesser hard extent. to say because we don't see it from Renarin's perspective. We don't know if he is actually bonded yet 
or if it's sort of the beginning stages, you know, because like Kaladin sees Syl around far before he actually bonds her. Mm, that's so a good I think that we can guess that maybe the scream is a part of why Renarin doesn't like handling his shard blade. I think there is even a mention I believe earlier in the book there where is. he grabs uh, Adolin's blade from him and he kind of winces Blinches, yeah. when he grabs it. So I think that's a good guess, but I just think we can't say for sure. Anyways, Renarin just like always being super awesome throughout this first half of the book and every aspect, even up until the very end when Adolin is able to issue this challenge, this request for a boon from the king and a challenge to Sadius to get the vengeance uh, for his betrayal. And then Kaladin just sliding in, absolutely ruining it and getting thrown into prison for the time being. That's where we leave this part three. The thing that stood out to me about that particular part, this reread, is that this is an example of Kaladin like not learning the lesson and so being put through the same thing again. Like in book one, he misses the forest for the trees. When they do the side carry, he misses the larger battlefield tactics, gets everything ruined, gets strung up in the high storm. Same thing here, right? Like he's too focused in, misses the bigger tactics, makes this move, dumb dumb, and then ends up in jail. And you're like, come on, dude, like, haven't you learned yet? Which brings me into my can't wait, which the biggest thing that has stood out to me so far about this book is the difference of perspective that we get on Kaladin, um, which is really interesting Obviously, he's the main character in the first book. And so I think as a reader, we get really attached to him and like we understand him, we feel for him. You know, he's the protagonist. And I forgot how annoying he is in this book. I do not like Words of Radiance Kaladin at all. Sort of similar to what you were saying last time, where like, the first time you read Way of Kings, you just wanted to like skip through Shallan sec- sections. I feel that way about Words of Radiance. I just, every time it goes to Kaladin, I just like don't even want to read them. He's so obnoxious and self-centered and he's like obviously making all the wrong decisions and yeah, he's just depressed and annoying and oh my gosh. And I love that we sort of get that perspective from other people as well in this book. I think that is really what makes it key is that you're not necessarily supposed to like Kaladin because he is not a very likable character. I mean, but we have I love the things. difference that like you don't get that in the first book, of course, exactly. because he's yeah. the main character and it's from his perspective. And it's so and much just about book. like trauma and overcoming trauma. But this is a great example of like, writing a full world and a complete character because there are things after trauma like how does just how does he act in a normal environment right more like when the danger has passed yeah like you are secure now you are okay and a lot of times both in the real world and for kaladin specifically the 
ability to feel safe and feel yeah, secure down regulate is yeah they just don't have it they've lived in a state of heightened anxiety heightened trauma for so long that they can't really switch it off and so but we get this perspective from so many different people mm-hmm. dalinar says that kaladin is super moody and he's yeah. like look man i like, love you and you, you gotta saved get over me, your but stuff you dude can't just be t- shit talking the king or you can't just be uh disrespecting light eyes Adolin, obviously, him and Kaladin developed this, like, budding heads mentality, which... Which turns into kind of a cute friendship. It's the best friendship, I really like it. By the time we get to the end of Oathbringer, I love their relationship, and we will get to see that develop. But here, it's just at that, like, budding head stage and, like, constantly kind of demeaning remarks from Adolin, but... And then Shallan, obviously. Shallan just getting the best of him in their first meeting, which is great. The stealing of the boots. Well, and just like she, of course, Shallan speaks her mind a lot of the time. And she is the one who really comes out and is just like, dude, you just hate everyone, I guess. Like, why are you such a jerk? And literally just says it that blatantly. I definitely agree that the period that we are in the book it is for Kaladin specifically and this is not true for I think every other character but for Kaladin specifically you're dealing with this weird thing of like timing where he can't you know where you're going to get to by the end of the book which is Kaladin powering up and becoming more of the out and out hero Um, but at this point you can't get him to the end too fast and we'll talk about this with uh, Yasna as well, that basically, well, actually, I'll just roll this right in my rough cut because I, I think it plays sure. um, with exactly what you're saying, which is that this first half of Words of Radiance has a very difficult job. It's a second book, a sequel. It's also a middle book setting up at least three others after it. It cannot do too much. It cannot advance the story too far. You can't get to the end game of everything. Um, And so it's this kind of weird balance that I think is super difficult and has always been super difficult for authors or any story writers to pull off. But I feel like there's a bit of the feeling of like treading water when it comes specifically to Kaladin's story and that like, why is he not developing? Well, because he's repeating the same mistakes that he made before, as you said, which I totally understand can feel annoying, especially when you know that there's like a lot more for him to do and places for the story to go. And it feels like it's being kind of held back almost artificially. But to be honest, people don't always develop in a linear fashion. I mean, for sure. I'm just saying Kaladin is annoying AF in this book. <laughs> I'd agree with uh, that so far. And I think that it has a important caveat, which it, I believe the treading of the water actually allows for Shallan and other characters to become more significant. Because now it's Kaladin know, has I been wonder... used by like the, as a dummy, kind of, and everyone else is getting to play off of him where before it was like Kaladin was driving the story and yeah. we're trying to now get other characters to catch up in some ways. That's my literary analysis yeah. um, aspect. 
I totally understand from just a reading perspective of just like, bro, you are real tough right now to deal with. Yeah. Like, I mean, let's be honest. We were all like this at some point in our teenage years (laughs) and maybe sometimes still today. (laughs) And that is what it feels like. It feels like you just have this, you know, 18, 19 year old dumb dumb that you're just like, come on, dude, figure it out. That being said, I guess that is kind of my can't wait and also my rough cut a little bit. Um, And I don't know what I put for my rough cut is just that there is so freaking much in this book. I don't know if I necessarily don't like that, but there's a whole lot. It makes it really difficult um, if you're not ready for it. For sure. I think I was better prepared this time. This is now like my fourth reread of this um, book specifically. So I was definitely waiting for it and like ready for it and also kind of ready for the treading water that we've been talking about in Mm -hmm. Kaladin's character. Like I was prepared for it. But on a first read through, you'd miss everything. I did miss everything. Like it's just everything goes so fast every word is so important every sentence is meaningful and it's just never ending it's at such a crazy pace like you said three volumes three parts that we have seen here are like three books yeah could literally be three books there is so much so that being said let's dive right in to the five favorite things that we want to talk about yep moments characters scenes anything everything Would you like to start? Sure, I'll start, and I will begin at the beginning, which is the best place to begin, which is the prologue. We talked a little bit last time about how cool it is. I think that the prologues for these books are the exact same event told from different perspectives. Definitely a great writing trick. So cool. So this time we're seeing the feast from Yasna's perspective. And there's a few, you know, cool tidbits that we get in here that we don't get the first time. One is that she sees Gavilar talking to Amaram covertly in like a servant's staircase. Um, And we can kind of guess from that interaction that Gavilar is also a part of the Sons of Honor with Amaram. Have you given any thought to who's the chicken and who's the egg in that scenario? Is it Gavilar who was interested in the Sons of Honor? And I think that so. got Amaram in mm-hmm. or the reverse? I think Gavilar was first. Okay. Yeah. I tend to agree, but I've also just been like, because of Amaram's growing significance through Oathbringer and because we still don't know a whole bunch about the Sons of Honor, I was wondering if he is like more significant and maybe brought those ideas to Gavilar, but... You're probably right. Gavilar's probably the egg in that situation. Yeah, that's my guess right now anyway. Um, There's also a mention that Gavilar has recently stopped wearing his shard plate. And I am wondering if that is an indication that he has perhaps become a surge binder of some kind. I certainly believe we have the word of Brandon that Aspren was interested in Gavilar, but... That wouldn't necessarily mean that unless he had bonded a spren yeah. by saying the first ideal, which I yeah, I guess don't that think really he, it would um, 
require him to lose his shard plate until he made that first idea. Sure. Anyway, that's just a little question to keep in your noggin as we continue to read through Stormlight Archive is just why did Gavilar not wear his shard plate anymore? Bigger sort of event here is Yasna meeting with the assassin Liss, who also goes by the Weeper. Which is an awesome assassin name. Super cool assassin And hides the fact that she's a woman. No one knows her gender. She hides basically everything about her identity, including her gender, and the fact that she has a shard blade, which is what she uses to kill her victims. And she gouges their eyes out to hide their shard blade-ness. Certainly one of the most interesting and kind of corresponding things that are two assassins at this party and Lys used to own Zeth. Yeah. And again, they are both here at the same time, supposedly independently. But I just think there is something there's something going on at this event. I mean, obviously we know that, but there are just too many people with too many weird connections all in the same place at the same time. It's very suspicious. So do you think that suspiciousness leads to you feeling like there's an organizer who made all these things happen? Or is it like the event is super important? It's like gravity, like pulling mm. them all there. Yeah, I think I would go more on the side of gravity, but I'm also starting to question exactly how Zeth like gets to this event. I'm wondering if I don't there's just some interesting phrasing around the Parshendi like taking credit for the assassination and like deciding sort of at the event that they wanted to assassinate him and then I don't know is Zeth just like conveniently there I'm wondering who Liss is, if she is perhaps another herald in disguise. I don't know. I just think there's some there's some funky stuff going on. Okay. Well, funkiness in a prologue is a great way (laughs) to start off any book. And then speaking of heralds, lastly, in this prologue, obviously, we see Nalan and a second herald, possibly Kalak. We hear them talking about how Shalash is, quote unquote, getting worse. Um, and they have noticed Zeth carrying Yezrian's honor blade. And they're both kind of like, what are we doing? Uh, everything is out of control. Once again, it's a jam-packed book. That's the prologue we yeah. just talked about. <laughs> It is crazy that all the things that you just mentioned are just the intro to this book. Not to mention Yasna going to Shadesmar and like meeting her friend that she then bonds. Oh yeah, that was just didn't like, even mention that, but that was just normal. Yeah, yeah. that's just a normal day just for Yas. Run of the mill. <laughs> okay, for my first favorite thing, I think that the depth that we get to dive in and actually explore the Parshendi, who we come to know as the listeners because we start to see things from their perspective more through Esh and I. This was, I know I just gushed for half an hour about the duel in the arena, (laughs) uh, but Esh and I and the exploration of the listeners is I think the most important thing in Words of Radiance. 
Yeah, absolutely. The perspective that we get into their people and their culture is just indispensable to this book and obviously the series as a whole. When we find them, they are at the center of the shattered plains. Narok. And Eshenai says this about the people and place that the listeners now find themselves. Quote, So now the ruins of her people made their home in the ruins of a dead city. End quote. Like, this is just dark. And then you start to realize that this war that has been going on for five years is really having an impact on their society. Like, the people are choosing to go into dull form. And we'll talk more about the forms. But basically, they are choosing to abandon their own personalities. It's like their their version of being depressed. Kind of. They just, like, shut down, get into bed, and, like, do nothing. Basically, they just shut their prefrontal cortex off yeah okay that's a good way yeah just keeping the the bare minimum um going on and it, the dull form can blend in uh like the parchment or the parchment do in human society so they are basically just like prepared for their entire people to die and eshenai is just watching this and they're trying to do things like create art and summon new forms and venley is doing the scientist thing we know that doesn't work out well but when we see this view from eshenai's perspective and we come to see her as more of a person in her own right you know she's the adventurer and the the hiker you know in the regular yeah. world she's the person who's doing the pacific crest trail you know the pct uh and like the appalachian trail and she's like hiking mount everest and going exploring and she has been subjected forced kind of like oppressed into this role of general of her armies it's just so sad and it's the same realization that eventually Kaladin is going to most embody when you just look around and you're like oh we are far more similar than we are different our differences are far smaller than we realize and we probably shouldn't be fighting each other now this all goes awry with the arrival of Stormform And we'll talk about that more. But I really did have a view of the Parshendi as more like, I don't know what the correct word is, but like, like monstrous almost. Like they were more of like a nightmare Voidbringer-esque type of thing. Yeah, because they're completely different. So they are just this crazy, monstrous other of like we don't even know like yeah, what their they armor are, grows they out are. of their skin and they can jump over like gigantic chasms yeah they are you know weird singing and like chanting yeah and it was just like the first book in my head i had this vision of something that was more monstrous and then maybe partially because there has been such great artwork that is uh depicted the Parshendi and people's interpretation and Brandon's interpretation and like all of these commissioned works that are trying to show that the Parshendi are people maybe only like slightly different from the Alethi or anyone else 
uh, across Rashar. They are not monstrous so much as just like any other group. They're just an outgroup. Yeah, they're, they're just, just the people others. trying to live their lives. Yeah, exactly. And like that is what was so meaningful to me in this first half of the book is to see that before Stormform arrives and that all totally. goes to shit. Like yeah, it, it was exactly. super valuable to see that because they do become the monsters. And I think yeah. it's important to recognize that like they didn't start that way. Since we are on the topic of the listeners, I would love to go into the listener songs that uh, function as the epigraphs in part two. We get a bunch of pieces of the listener songs, particularly one that describes the different forms. And this is one of those things, one of those, you know, little things that is packed into this book that gives us so much information in like such a small thing. I've been just like reading and rereading the epigraphs at the beginning, trying to like parse out what they could potentially mean for the Stormlight Archive. I will start with mediation form, quote, when used by the gods, it became instead form of lies and desolation, end quote. Which is like very on brand for politicians. (laughs) And yeah, and just like, is this the thing that brought about the desolations? Like, I don't know. Crazy. I certainly think that there is something to say about the form of lies uh, that yeah. this becomes. And it's just like now the more, we'll call it just like pure, nice uh, Parshendi, get a little drop of that like Alethi uh, Machiavellian nature. Yeah. Uh, and they're just far more willing to spin lies. Play and, politics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, secondly, storm form. Obviously, we end up seeing this in the book. Quote, Through, though it's coming brings the gods their night, it obliges a blood red spren. Beware its end. End quote. And that's like perfectly setting up the horror of what storm form is, which is a form that allows the spren of odium to take hold in the listeners. And so it is, it's just depicting what's going to happen to Eshenai before we even get anywhere close to that. Night form, quote, predicting what will be the form of shadows, mind to foresee, end quote super interesting they apparently have a form that can see the future i wonder if this form uses the same spren as the truth watchers and i would be super interested if it is susceptible to the same corruption that the alethi are so afraid of right i mean that's the whole thing right is eshenai's biggest uh resistance to even trying storm form is that a seed of their mostly forgotten history that has survived says, do not seek these forms of power. They yeah. are dangerous. Exactly. And certainly we know that Stormform is and others probably present similar dangers. Smoke form, 
is actually mentioned twice, once at the beginning of chapter 25 and once at the beginning of chapter 30. And it's interesting because these two epigraphs say similar things, but they're slightly different. And so I'm curious if this is like the song changing over time, sort of, as with any oral history, it sort of gets modified and changed as time moves on. 25 says, quote, a form of power like human surges, bring it round again. Though though crafted of gods, it was by unmade hand, leaves its force to be but one of foe or friend. And then in chapter 30, it says, quote, a form of power like surges of spren. Do we dare to wear this form again? It spies, crafted of gods, this form we fear. By unmade touch, its curse to bear, formed from shadow, and death is near. It lies. End quote. Like, what? What? I have no idea. It is clearly something that is touched by unmade hand right which we can assume is probably ja'anat crafted of the gods is like something similar like crafted of the gods done by unmade hand but you can see how the ways that the song may change over time that's a really good interpretation i like that a lot because it says so much about this whole story about history and like what you think you know is not what you know yeah which is a theme that sanderson plays with so much yeah basically all his work he yeah, likes it a lot which is one of my absolute favorite things it's I, why we keep coming back to yeah it. i just absolutely love that exploration and then we also hear through these songs that a sort of timeline the listeners found their gods after the Spren betrayed them and started doing the hell bonds with humans. So that tells us a little bit about who their gods might be. And then in chapter 34, the epigraph says, quote, Our gods were born splinters of a soul, of one who seeks to take control, destroys all lands that he beholds with spite. They are his Spren, his gift, his price. But the night forms speak of future life, a challenged champion, a strife even he must requite, end quote. So do we think that challenged champion is Dalinar or like? I mean, clearly it's speaking to the same sort of myth or legend of Odium facing down a champion at some Mm -hmm. point and that that is the best way to go about trying to defeat Odium. I'm curious if this means that the champion will be a Parshendi. Venli, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. It's very interesting. There is this weird thing that we know about Rhythm of War. I don't think this is a spoiler to say or anything because it's not accurate anymore, but that Eshenai was far more like planned to be part of this rhythm of war yeah it was supposed to be her her book book. and then it became something like venley in the present and maybe eshenai flashbacks or something like that we know that it's now been divided between the two of them yeah so i'm just super curious we have this character of eshenai that i was just talking about and we are learning so much about the listener culture I 
wonder if there was uh, a shift in Brandon's mind about where the story was going to go. Instead of following Eshina, he actually let her... Yeah, this is a spoiler because this whole podcast is about spoilers. Yeah. But uh, Eshenai dies at the end of Words of Radiance and so Venli can then kind of arise and take her place. Who knows if that was always planned? I don't know. Brandon will hit us up. Again, huge friend <laughs> of the pod. Another of my favorite things about Words of Radiance is Shalon. Oh, yes. Shalon as you mentioned, was not my favorite part of the first book. I thought that her character was interesting and like worthy of development. And then this is where all the development happens. The way that she develops in this book is incredible. 100%. It is just from the very beginning when Yasna and Shalon are like on the boat and she's getting more information uh, about the surges yeah. and the powers to her trials of getting to the shattered planes and like dealing with thieves and murderers and rapists and all this bandit stuff. And then she gets to the war camps. She is playing the political game, the game of the ghost bloods. All of this stuff is just so much so fast. Plus her flashbacks. And then like, that's the you thing. add the flashbacks in on top <laughs> like, of it. There's everything that happens with her in the present, which is a lot and then on top of that we are getting a ton of information about her backstory it definitely to me feels like this is why kaladin is kind of treading water as a character and kind of repeating yeah his like pattern. make room for shallan exactly. step aside bridge boy exactly because shallan is stepping up to the table and it is wonderful i love how she learns from and then handles a tin i love how as she develops pattern is also developing and pattern becomes hilarious pattern is so funny everything that pattern says by oathbringer is like a laugh out loud <laughs> line and now you like start to see him like it literally feels like someone figuring out a joke and he just loves it and then we'll just make sarcastic and witty and funny comments just from here until we get back up to the present day (laughs) and i love it i i love even the kind of um meta nature of this because shallan steps in this is really her veil role right she is like creating the character of veil that is helping Shalon get through these circumstances. Yeah. And that's who we are starting to see right now. And we get a little bit more of like brightness radiant by the end slash Oathbringer. Um, but these kind of like characters that are going to become very, or personalities that are going to become really important to Shalon, we're starting to see them develop. And she's using her powers as a light weaver really for the first time, you know, sneaking into places, wearing different faces. She reminds me of a, uh, Arya Stark from Game of Thrones in that way. (laughs) And I think that there's this weird aspect of in any long series, whether it's TV or book or movies or whatever, you might take a single character and then actually see them like rewritten or changed around to fit a certain scene Mm. or circumstance. Yeah, like you kind of always need a 
a utility player, yes. right? Like someone who can kind of do any of the little things that you need them to do. You're like, oh, we kind of need a spy in this scenario. Ah, Shalom can be a spy. Yeah, we exactly. We kind of need uh, light eyes in this scenario. Ah, Shalom can be a fancy light eyes. And that could feel, that could be what it feels like. It could just, oh, like Shalon, she just like does whatever Brandon needs her to do. Right. But the way that he writes it is both true to the world and true to the character of Shallan. Yeah, and true to humans. I like the themes that run through Shallan's characters of fake it till you make it, Mm -hmm. which is a lesson that I think we all kind of learn throughout our lives. Yeah, not like, look, nobody really knows what they're doing, especially when they first start out. Like, you just do it and you pretend and, like, people will believe you. <laughs> and um, and that, you know, sort of being written as this uh, magical illusion is cool. But even Shalon gets that idea from Yasna, who is not speaking about it magically, but is just speaking about it in the real world of just like the way you act is the way that people will perceive you. All you have to do is, you know, put on that um, illusion in quotes. She says to Shalon, quote, Power is an illusion of perception, end quote. And I mean, that's everything. I think it's even more wonderful because you're totally right. It's a very human thing. But at the same time, Brandon also gets very meta with it or just the way he plays with it is great because Shalon actually does have to confront the reality of all of these different personalities by the time we get to Oathbringer. Totally. They... There are interesting things. The other like theme sort of that I was just going to mention is that we all have different aspects of ourselves, different parts of our personality that Mm -hmm. we pull out, you know, during different moments. Obviously, you don't act the same way with your boss as you do with your significant other, for example, or, you know, different groups of friends that you have different things in common with. We all have this aspect of ourselves. And Shalon obviously does that magically. And because of her, your unique life, it is a little bit more difficult for her to reconcile those things. And there's an interesting quote in uh, in here when she's talking to Tin, actually. And I think it's a great example of like a journey before destination kind of idea. Obviously, Shalon did not plan to be shipwrecked. She did not plan to fall in with Tin. And yet she finds herself in a place where she's actually getting really good life advice from Tin, advice that she needs to hear, which is, quote, here's the thing. The lies we tell, the dreams we create, they're not real. We can't let them be, end quote, which is exactly the advice that Shalon needs and is also as we just learned in the uh, Night's Radiant descriptions, yeah. like that is the essence of light weavers, basically. Is they like, have to know you the need line. to be able to tell what is truth and what is a lie and to find that differentiation. Yeah. And right now, Shalon is in the midst, maybe like the exponential growth, the real exciting point of her powers where she does not have that line clearly established right now yes and certainly by the- i would imagine that she will have a similar trajectory to kaladin just 
a book behind because mm-hmm. she's a book behind Kaladin, where in this book, he loses Syl, he loses his power because he's not being true to his Windrunner ideals. Um, I could see that happening in book four. Shalon unable to create the line in between her personalities and pattern, you know, going away from her, her powers going away from her because she is not living up to that truth aspect of her light weaving. Yeah, I do not think we have seen the end of Shalon's, we'll call it multiple personality problems. Uh, she is dealing with a lot and it seems like she's kind of solidified into three personalities currently at the end of Oathbringer. But I think we have a lot more in store for Shalon. And you're right, that could come with a, a kind of, you know, step backwards before you can move forward type of prog- progression. Yeah. I would love to just stay with Shalon. <laughs> with Shalon. Yeah. It is her book, so uh, we should be talking about her a lot. Um, but as you said, in this book, she just, her sections have so much interest and intrigue and so many questions that are posed. Another one of those scenes in this book that I feel for some reason this scene is just absolutely fixed in my mind all the time. The scene where she sees the Santhid. Probably, well, at least for me, it sticks in my mind because of this one image that maybe we'll post in show notes, but it is a gorgeous piece of artwork and once I saw that and the, I guess the scale and kind of scope of how they drew the Santhid so much larger than Shalon, which it is as written, but the way that it was drawn just makes it feel like, I don't know, the lion turtle uh, from the Avatar world <laughs> meeting like tiny little Aang. Uh, like that's what I see is just like this creature of unimaginable size and power and age and all this stuff and then this one small little human just like the size of the eye is what not even the eye like the pupil yeah exactly yeah and so it's just a an iconic scene that i would say you know if ever there is any type of film or television show that deals with the stormlight archive uh, I like I can't wait for that one as much as like I'm waiting for the duel. I also yeah. just want that scene with the Santhan. Yeah, the way that it's written just gives you this beautiful like snapshot in your mind and evokes this sense of wonder and adventure that is really awesome. Um, a little I just have like a few I pulled out a few tidbits from Shalon's uh scenes here that I just want to highlight quickly to your point in our last episode about everyone in Shalon's family thinking that they are the only normal one. There is a great uh, quote for this in Words of Radiance. Her brother Jushu uh, appears like stumbling down the hallway drunk and says, quote, Balat is going straight crazy. I'm the only one left in this family with any sense. You were staring at the wall again, weren't you? End quote. I love this. I love everything about the flashbacks that we see with Shalon's family, seeing how the events, which we still don't completely understand because we're in part three, 
how they lead to the breaking of Shalon's family, and then most importantly, how Shalon is trying to put them all back together. And she takes and, this role on as just a little girl, uh, and she's yeah. like trying to help everyone, and she's trying to save her brothers, and you know, fight off her dad, but also dealing with this immense trauma that is going to traumatize her for many, many years after she is trying to do the right thing. And she doesn't really have anyone there to help her yeah. deal with it. And this reread, I think that fact really solidified for me. The first time I read Words of Radiance, I didn't completely understand the way that like her condition is depicted in text, where there are multiple, multiple times when pattern is trying to get her to remember the past and remember what happened. And he's like, no, remember when you were a little girl and like we used to play together? Like you've known me for a long time, and remember? And then it stops. And then it stops and there's just like dot, dot, dot. And then it picks up again. The first time that I read this book, I did not understand what was happening in those moments. Basically, you, you didn't see the code that Brandon was trying to leave you. Yeah, I thought that like pattern was just trailing off, but that's not it. It's, it's that Shalon shuts down like a dull form Parshendi. Yeah. Basically. She blacks she, out. Yeah. She just shuts off her brain. And then she even says like she kind of turns back on when Pattern stops talking. And this this reread that has really like hit home yeah, to me. It happens multiple times in multiple scenes at multiple ages that she'll including like the present yeah i was gonna say in the past and in the present and so it's shown to both be her coping mechanism in the past and that importantly she's still using that coping mechanism now which is also what prevents her from progressing as a radiant sort of on that tangent as well she interestingly refers to her shard blade many times as her mother's soul I do not understand this. Which I don't understand. And I just think it's really interesting. And I want to know what that is all about. I have to think that it has got to be some clue about yeah. the shard blades taking and holding onto the soul. Maybe I in agree. the gem. Like that the, you know, in the pommel. Of uh -huh. the shard blades. Uh -huh. And so like there's always this thing about shard blades and like what it means to bond a shard blade. And it's like kind of shrouded in secrecy because not that many people have shard blades. But like I've always kind of thought that hemallergy was somehow involved, that it was something about like well, it taking is, and absorbing like, part of the soul. Yeah, you're like bonding it to your spirit web yes. in the same way that hemallergy would sort of tack something onto your spirit web mm -hmm. so i think that they are related and interestingly this is a side point but i'm gonna say it anyway <laughs> adolin has a very interesting intuitive understanding of shard blades which i think contributes to his prowess in dueling but he mentions uh when he is practicing with his shard blade one day that when you bond a blade it becomes part of your soul and he's not saying this because it's like well known. It's just like something that he feels. But I think he is absolutely correct. And so I kind of wonder if you're able to do that in a quote unquote cooperative or like peaceful way where you're bonding the blade and it becomes yours to, to wield. Maybe the not peaceful way 
that shard blades do that is by cutting through things and taking out their soul, removing their soul. I think that it's like that she believes she feels that her mother's soul is still is in like that blade. trapped in the blade. Yes. Yeah. It's just it's very interesting. I do feel like she's having some kind of insight into what the mechanics of shard blades are. She also sees it as like a blindingly brilliant light, which no other character, not even, you know, Kaladin or current radiance mention so there's something super interesting going on there that we don't quite understand yet along with this some other sort of unique abilities that shalon appears to have there is one point when she is sort of therapeutically drawing and she just happens to draw the ship's crew like climbing out of the water onto the shore and like she basically sees that some of them have survived and are alive and she thinks that she's like oh i'm just you know i'm just feeling bad and like missing them that's why i drew that she flips the page and then she draws again this time she draws what we assume what we can assume is shalash smashing uh, a statue and she doesn't really understand why she's drawn that and i'm curious like why does she have this kind of clairvoyant power there's obviously something happening here where she is able to like scry and see things that are happening in other places and is that part of her illumination surge perhaps i would think that this has to be a maybe resonant point between her powers or because like drawing is also part of her thing that's like weirdly connected Mm -hmm. i just have to think that what she is doing is not foresight. No, she's not seeing the future. She's, she's seeing, seeing the something, present. Exactly. Something. So it would have she's to be. She's seeing through space, but not through time. Shadesmar is my answer, is that her artwork partially comes through Shadesmar, is that she is not drawing only in the physical realm, is that she's capturing something about mm. the, like mm-hmm. a stamp in the Emperor's soul. Yeah, 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 she yeah. She is capturing something true, and it's like going through all three realms. And so her ability to see into Shadesmar is the way that she could conceivably see another place at the same time. But I wonder if that is connected to the surge of illumination. You know, it is like casting light on things that would not normally be seen it i think might be the combination of powers maybe is that like they have to the else colors wouldn't be able to do this even if they were a great Mm, artist that it might only be because it's else colors share one of their surges with light weavers and then light weavers share one of their surges with truth watchers yeah so and illumination is the surge that they share with the truth watchers so i would think it's the thing that is only unique can only be done by light weavers is this concept of like viewing right now through shadesmar to somewhere else Mm. like like, so then are truth watchers only seeing the future i would think so light weavers can only see the present I would think that that is something closer hmm. to, you know, how how it operates. Obviously, we're anyway, speculating because we don't like, know a lot. 
what a freaking useful skill that she never comes back to. Like, this would be great during a battle. Can you tell us what the enemy is doing, Shalon? I actually do think she comes back to it. It's just not in the parts we've gotten to yet. This oh, maybe. is the map drawing of Shalon, how her ability to remember the things that she like takes a snap photo of and then how she navigates them out of the... Yeah, but that's closer to just sort of her regular, regular, quote unquote. That's what her I don't think regular, it's regular. amazing yeah. drawing ability. Yeah, but that's not seeing into other places. No, but it, what it's doing is allowing you to create in your mind a vision of something that exists in the real world from perspectives that you have never seen Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. it's like um basically you know any artist has to be able to view things from a different perspective yeah um and one of the talents of great artists is to be able to shift and move their perspective um and i think that's what shalon is able to do with her maps she's like unlike anyone else able to change her perspective and give a view from like you know the bird's eye view type of thing without ever having been there uh but she can do that all in her brain which is i don't think a normal thing fair enough last little bit about shalon because really it's about yasna yasna is amazing i love the first time i read i read this book that first part where yasna is like teaching shalon and as a reader, you're getting so much information. Exactly. Finally, just you're just like, Yasna, tell me everything. Tell me everything. And then she dies. I was just like, no, that was my path to information. And I completely agree. I loved the explanations and just how much it seemed like Yasna was opening up. She says this line, which I feel like should be slapped into every school or like place of learning that exists anywhere in the world. Where she says, quote, I found that refusing to explain secrets to young people makes them more prone to get themselves into trouble, not less, end quote. I pulled that out, too. It's perfect. And we as readers obviously love the secrets. We, we want the secrets to be explained to us. Yasna is just giving that clearly. And she's having those real honest conversations about what power is and what a woman is able to do in this world and what Shalon is capable of. And I basically think that this seals her fate uh, in this book (laughs) because and until her return in Oathbringer, Yasna is too powerful and has too much information to exist in this world as it currently is. So in the same way that Kaladin has to tread water, Yasna has to leave the book entirely because if she was still around, she would be too wise too important she would suck all the energy from everyone else you would only ever want to focus on yasta be like uh dalinar what do you do no don't talk to dalinar dalinar is an (laughs) idiot he has severe traumatic brain injuries from a lifetime of war talk to yasna the genius with superpowers like well yeah i think i think you're right there is a thing of um you know a character like yasna a scholar who has all the answers uh is the 
instant gratification that as a reader you want, but ultimately will not be as satisfying as going through the process. And there's a principle in art, most clearly exemplified in like a play or a movie. You want your characters to discover as much as possible on screen. Like all of the discoveries need to happen in front of your audience, not be told to them and not happen off screen, but like the discovery needs to be active in the moment. And so as you're saying, Yasna takes that sort of away because you can just be like, Yasna, tell us everything and sort of Shakespeare style, you know, give the, yes, here's the prologue the large of like, monologue. here's exactly what's going to happen <laughs> where you take her out and then you get to have all of those discoveries on screen, so to speak. So I think that middle books are always difficult. And if we imagine the first five books in the Stormlight Archive, which is like makes up one part and then there's going to be a time jump. And that may include a time jump for Brandon working on them. Prepare yourself for that moment. But what I think is happening in each of the individual books, part one, two, three, four, and five is also happening in the Stormlight Archive as a whole in that books one, two, and three, like we just talked about, are going to be a lot of setup and then books four and five are going to be the Sanders avalanche. Yeah, totally. So you got to save your avalanche pieces like Yasna <laughs> for the end game, those books four and five, because now she is queen of Kolinar and is probably the most powerful woman on the planet. Yas queen. Yes, indeed. Yasna forever. Okay, we have talked about the duel, which obviously is a big climax. However, I completely forgot about another huge climax until I was taking notes for this podcast episode, which is, um, remember that huge battle between Zeth and Kaladin? And Dalinar and Adolin. Yeah. Remember when like, remember Zeth that? clearly <laughs> destroys Haber's legs and kills several people and then Dalinar last claps his shard blade it's an incredible sequence of events. Adolin, and it's just like, the amazing dueler, is just made a fool of. Kaladin's uh, arm gets right? sliced through and yeah. heals it. He gets a shard blade wound, by the way. Remember that? And then he no, heals it. No, I don't. And because then that he was... falls out of a building and survives. There is so much craziness that this crazy epic fight and battle just like it gets lost. In by everything. the time the duel comes around, you've forgotten about it. And it's very important, too, because it begins Kaladin and Adolin's new relationship of, like, grudging respect. Um, We see it when Kaladin is training on uh, with Zahel uh, with the shard blades. And Adolin, who always, like, you know, is quick to jibe and quick to uh, insult Kaladin, just looks at him, nods, and, like, they move forward because... They both got their ass kicked last time and they can't happen again. And so you're going to train. On the subject of Kaladin and Adolin's totally cute, somewhat bromance. Oh, don't even say somewhat. Like there are a lot of people who want the thruple to happen (laughs) and just go full Adolin, Kaladin. I think they're called a triad. 
Oh, Triad's nice too. Yeah. That's not bad. But I'm going with Thrupple. Okay. Uh, because it's ridiculous. And the <laughs> That's a gross word. It is a gross word, and that's why it needs to exist. <laughs> because the Thrupple of Kaladin, Adolin, and Shallan may happen. I may don't not hate it. Happen, they could have a threesome. They could have a thruple, a full relationship. <laughs> I have no problems with this. I just want them all to be happy together. <laughs> anyway, this epic battle with Zeth is the thing that solidifies Adolin's um, intuition that there's something weird about Kaladin. And there's a super funny conversation that they have later on when Adolin is like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, do the uh, do the thing, right? The thing. And Kaladin's just like, you don't know what you're talking about, do you? <laughs> He's like, no, 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 the thing. You know, the thing that you do with the uh, the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Another just quick thing that I want to pull out of this epic battle is that final moment between Zeth and Kaladin, this sort of heartbreaking realization of Zeth that he has been named truthless in error that like his entire life all of these atrocities that he has committed are for naught basically i mean he's having the wander sale moment this is what oh. we talked about last book and zeth's realization is what the people of the island had when they realized that the king was dead long ago and that all the atrocities that they had committed were at their own hand because of their own choosing. But to a certain extent, like he really is the victim. Because He's a he, victim, yes. He says here, like, I told them, like, yeah. I told them this and they told me that I was lying. Yeah. They told me that I was truthless. Like they gaslighted me, basically. And like I knew it. And that is super sad. But <sighs> I also think that the story of the Wander Cell is specifically there to enforce the idea or at least introduce the idea that decisions are the things that are important and zeth was gaslighted that's exactly what happened to him and his decisions that he made are still his to bear it's like what dalinar says in oathbringer you cannot have my pain like this isn't anybody else zeth's gonna have to bear the atrocities that he committed and that's probably going to be yeah. parts of rhythm of war and um this final part of the stormlight archive is like how does zeth process this and that's what i think and as we've talked about that is sort of his fatal character flaw that we have seen so far is that even after this realization even after he is on the path to becoming a knight's radiant he is very quick to give up his own personal uh responsibility He's yeah. very quick to give up his agency to other people. I think it's probably an aspect of dealing with his trauma. And yeah. it's just like his thing that he is quick to do is just like to give responsibility to someone else. Oh, Nail, you'll take it. The yeah. Skybreakers will Dalinar, take it. Dalinar, you'll take it. You'll take it. And it, I think what... Zeth and Kaladin just need to like get a, a therapist together, sit down... And be like, hey, man, you really need to stop taking responsibility for literally everything in the world. And then like, hey, man, 
you really need to like take a little bit more responsibility for your own actions. Like maybe we can share this, share this around. Yeah, I think that that is actually the perfect. <laughs> remember, they also share their surges. The Skybreakers and the Windrunners yeah. are two sides of the same coin dealing with similar traumas, dealing with similar issues. Uh, but they're going to react to it in almost the opposite ways, or that's going to be their inclination and probably something they have to learn from. And the final bit that I want to talk about is to end with Kaladin. We gave Kaladin, I think, his just comeuppance this episode. <laughs> and yeah, I just wanted to use that word uh, because he deserves it. But, but... Are we going back to the duel? Of course we're going oh back God. to the duel. We started with the duel. We haven't we're talked about it enough. With the duel. I'm not going to go into it like I did last time. All I'm going to say is that from Kaladin's perspective, what we see towards the end of part three is A, some brilliant writing from Brandon. This is like the thing that other authors just either get or they don't. They're just able to do it or they're not. And most of them no disrespect to great storytellers, most of them are not able to do this because what Brandon does with interspersing, intercutting the moment of Shalon as Vale and Kaladin running through the chasms where he is learning to like be a windrunner and he's jumping around and he's just like, I have to have no fear. And it's all being interspersed and cut um so that they are having this growth of their own powers and this their own abilities together separate obviously because they're not actually together but they are having this kind of moment uh that brandon like intertwines their characters i just feel it's really great and that's what happens to caladun right before the duel is that running through the chasms, you know, on the walls or whatever, and he, like, finishes and uses up a bunch of stormlight, and Syl's just like, that was great, right? That was wonderful. And Kaladin has that moment of just like, man, I want to go kill Amaram. At that moment, Shallan is in Amaram's place, like, stealing and sneaking through his stuff, but he comes away back to Syl, and Syl, like, brings him back down to reality, and she is just like, I think you're almost ready. I think you're almost there. And Kaladin's like, yes, I am almost there. And then we go to the next day, and the next day is the duel. And you have this moment. Please just read this with me. Okay. Because it's great. Okay. You have this moment where Renarin is down there swinging a sword with no training and no oh, armor. Renarin. Where Adolin is getting beaten to death by three super-powered individuals with magical weapons, and Dalinar is screaming at everyone. He's screaming at Sadius. He's screaming at the king, give me your honor blade, like, I'll, or give me your shard blade. I'll go down there. And the king's like, no, like, you're just going to die or lose my weapon, and it's not going to happen. Like, just watch. Watch what this is. Watch while your sons die yeah. or get maimed for life. Exactly. And, and then this happens. Quote, what has happened to us? Dalinar asked. Where is our honor? Honor is dead. A voice whispered from beside him. Dalinar turned and looked at Captain Kaladin. He hadn't noticed the bridgeman walking down the steps behind him. Kaladin took a deep breath, then looked at Dalinar. But I'll see what I can do. If this goes poorly, take care of my men. Spear in hand, 
he grabbed the edge of the wall and flung himself over, dropping to the sands of the arena floor below. End quote. Epic. Yeah, it's pretty dang good, guys. <laughs> you know, we gave Kaladin a little bit of shit this episode. But at the end of part three, he says, honor is dead, but I'll see what I can do. And then the very next words out of his mouth are, please take care of my men. Please take care of Bridge Four. Like, he's got some problems, but also he's a very good person. Obvious. And that is what I take away from is, and you you keep coming back to, and that's why like you root for Kaladin, even when he is being super annoying, even when he is experiencing the same problems over and over again. You have. I think that's what makes it so frustrating is because like as a reader, you see the potential mm-hmm. in Kaladin and it's like, gosh, you have so many great qualities. You have so many good things going for you and you let the worst part of you like overshadow those yeah. things, like cut down those branches. Let your light shine, little man. <laughs> I think it's the difference between like a Kelsier and a Ven. Where, like, Kelsey was probably never going to be able to let go. He was never going to be able to become the hero. totally. And Vin can. And Kaladin is somewhere in between. He might be able to. He he might not. He might fail. Like, I still think that's a total possibility is that we could have some type of role reversal, antagonist reversal for Kaladin. That's just my long bet. But right now, honor is dead, and I'll see what I can do. Pretty dang good. My last piece here, we're just going to go out on a real small little cute note (laughs) because this scene just made me happy and I thought was so well written. Shalon has just arrived at the Shattered Plains. She walks into a conference of sorts where all of the important light eyes have convened and she sees Adolin and she immediately is like oh damn that boy cute and is like looking at him and then we switch to Adolin's perspective and he like sees Shalon walked in and he's like oh my god who is that (laughs) dang that's a really pretty girl and so they're both like kind of looking at each other they have this like cute conversation where they're like kind of flirting and then Dalinar sends Adolin away and Shalon kind of like looks after him with like goo goo eyes and then she turns around and looks at Dalinar and remarks that Dalinar's face is unfortunate (laughs) and it's just so funny and so cute. Nothing to add other than it's just that's the beginning of my thruple. Like (laughs) first Shalon and Adolin got to get it together and then they got to bring in that Kaladin, just warm that the cuckles of his heart. No common, another wordplay that's possible there. Let's go to some Cosmere connections because we have one big thing pointed out that should be the hint that anyone needs or should be the only hint that anyone needs. But there have been a lot uh, for our man Zahel and... In this one, we find out something specific, which I think is really important. Yeah, there are, I think, so many clues to who Zahel really is from his comments about how strange everything is here to his color-based metaphors that he's constantly dropping. We can tell pretty quickly that Zahel is Vasher. 
from his interlude, which is in this section, uh, we also understand that he has retained a lot of his uh, awakening or breath powers. Yeah, to me, that's the important part. <laughs> yeah, he s- definitely still has his life sense because he knows instantly that someone is approaching his room. That's a direct quote. He immediately notices that. And then he also remarks that he can sense uh, Kaladin's spren floating around. Not that he can see her, but he can sense her. So we can infer from that that breath life sense is able to detect spren, which I think is really interesting. Definitely Zahel is like, as he becomes more interwoven into this story and as we get Azure slash the Vena in the next one, they have a huge role to play on Rashar. We don't know if that role has already been played or is yet to be played, but I think that the fact that now we have confirmation that Nalthian magic works on Rashar. I don't know if we have seen anything else that was kind of this direct of magic systems like clearly crossing and being used uh, on different worlds, but I just like that it brings up all these questions of like, what is he doing? Why is he doing it? We know now with a little bit more of the big Cosmere picture that he actually chose Rashar because the investiture Stormlight is more readily available. And so like, we know that that's part of his rationale, but does he get like the breath is there some breath equivalent yeah, like, to like Stormlight? Can what he just... happens if he just stands out in a high storm? Like how much breath is that equivalent exactly. to? Exactly. What's the how mathematics much, of How breath? much is he? Like if Zahel is a sphere, how much can be invested into Zahel? You know? I think the answer might be infinity. infinity. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like Nightblood, but reverse is like you can pump them up as much of investiture uh. as possible where Nightblood like sucks it all in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like. I, you have to have a lot oh my gosh. to do wait, 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 some wait, of wait, the wait. things that Zahel has already shown off. Wait, what would happen if you like stabbed Nightblood into the High Storm? Would it just like absorb the High Storm and then no more High Storms on Rashar? Can no, they kill would, the Can they kill the Everstorm that way? Wouldn't you kill just the like He Man? I have the power and just like suck of the high storm into the sword there could be a nightblood-esque uh like i would think don't stab it into the storm but stab it into odium is what i would think you would want oh, to do that would probably I be guess a you better could do use that <laughs> but yeah you could also i think like you could kill spren with nightblood um so you could probably take out the Stormfather. Or one of the other large spren, I think. Maybe that's like endgame how they kill all of the like unmade and stuff. Hmm. hmm. I don't think Nightblood's on Rashard just for kicks, kicks and, and grins. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Obviously, our other Cosmere connection is going to be Hoyd. We do have many Hoid sightings. And in, there are more to come in the next section as well. For sure. For sure. For sure. Um, sort of our run of the mill Hoid slash wit sightings. 
Uh, we have Wit driving the carriage at one point where uh, Shalon, Adolin, and Kaladin all separately recognize him. Yes, at different times, and they all use the same way of meeting Wit when they say, You! And then Wit says, Me! <laughs> and by the final one, which is Shalon, uh, he just goes, yes, yes, we've been over this. And then Shalon immediately hugs him. Yeah. And she says, I never got the chance to thank you. And that is because he was in another uh, scene, a flashback with Shalon at Middlefest. And this is another super interesting Shalon moment that just makes me go, huh. That seems a little bit strange because Wit's reaction to Shalon is he like turns and stares at her with a slack jaw. And then he says, I did not expect to find you here. Do you think he was talking about Shalon or her spren? I think he's talking about Shalon. And maybe it's just because she is like the first radiant. Like maybe he's looking for the first radiant and he has some kind of power that allows him to see that she is one. Yeah, he has life sense because he is already pumped full of uh, breaths. Do we know that for sure? He is carrying around a not like God King number of breaths, but he has more than the six heightening of breaths by the first time, the first time we ever sure. see Hoyd, he uh-huh. is al- already carrying that around. Because he has perfect pitch? Yes. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so maybe that's it. But it's just a really interesting reaction. Um, but then they have this really great sort of heart-to-heart, and Wit is maybe the only adult in a very long time that has been kind to Shalon and has, like, given her, you know decent life advice that as a young person you really need from grown-ups um he helps her keep going he helps her persist um in both her life and her plans to help her family and a great quote from this section is quote to be human is to seek beauty shalon do not despair do not end the hunt because thorns grow in your way End quote. And on the way that Wit is driving the carriage, this is actually very similar to what happened in Mistborn Era 2 with Wax and Wayne, where Hoyd is actually a named, known, and regular carriage driver of Wayne and Wax in their adventures throughout the city. And like Wayne has like multiple conversations with him until one day Hoy just like leaves uh, as he does. But because of the importance of Hoyd in Mistborn Era 2, I was just doing some research and he shows up in all these really important moments in ways that he only does that we see. On Rashar. Like, we mm. only get him mm-hmm. interacting as much on Rashar as we see in Mistborn Era 2. Someone pointed out that Harmony specifically asked for, in the letters that we see in Oathbringer, um, for more 
communication and possibly cooperation from Hoyd. He basically said, like, I'm interested in what you have to say. Oh, yeah. But I don't trust you. What if the way that Hoyd decided to prove his trust was to help his wax character do all the things that Harmony wanted to do? Yeah. No, I think that's a great call, especially we know that Harmony has a non-interventionist mm-hmm. um philosophy he does not want to really act in any way to influence things for better or for worse hoyd on the other hand yeah exactly not have that philosophy. but he can use hoyd as his sort of tool tool can be his man on or hoyd can be his man on the ground to help things along in the way that they need to be helped i think that is a great place to call it a day we are going to come back next time finished words of radiance we'll close off all of our thoughts for parts four and five and the interludes and the epilogue and, and the, the epilogue end note and the ars arcana <laughs> as we always do it's all spoilers all the time here we really appreciate everyone for listening we ask now in this time of summer to celebrate the Cosmere, celebrate yourselves, celebrate us, uh, and leave us a rating or review on any of the services that you use. It helps a bunch create new listeners. With Rhythm of War imminently coming out and so many cool Cosmere things happening, there are definitely new Cosmere fans joining the fandom all the time, and your reviews and ratings on any of your podcast platforms will help those people find their way to their online community. Until next time, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination. 